Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It was a book of the year a few years ago, and it is a book that has aged well across the financial crisis. The age of oversupply. Daniel Alpert joins us from Westwood Capital uh, this morning. Daniel, it's been an extraordinary year, a year everybody wants to forget. As we slide into 2021, where is the output gap? Where is the dynamics of our oversupply? Well, I think we what we've seen recently, which is fascinating, is the huge uh, resurgence in uh, imports from China and other countries. So what, what we haven't seen is the reshoring of, of manufacturing, the reshoring of production in general. Uh, and uh, when I look at the when I look at the import export data, it's it's just fascinating to me how much we are reliant on uh, exogenous oversupply. Uh, and of course, at, at the worst possible time, when a good deal of our labor force is underemployed yeah. and unemployed. Well, I wanted to start where I wanted to go, Daniel Airport. Many of us folks have projects for 2020 that we. <clears throat> have not accomplished. Dan Alpert is the opposite with Cornell Law. He has put together a terrific analysis of the labor dynamics of the nation. Dan Alpert, how bad is it? Well, we have you know somewhere around 12 million people who are uh, not employed, whereas prior to the pandemic they were. Uh, I think that that uh, masks a considerable softness in the labor force that's exhibited every week when we look at unemployment claims. These unemployment claims are no longer original layoffs, meaning if you aggregate the entire amount of unemployment claims to date, you're nearly at 35, 40 percent of the labor force. And clearly, we don't have 30 or 40 percent of the labor force unemployed. So what you're seeing is incredible instability in the ability of workers to hold on to jobs. And, you know, a classic example of that, obviously, is what happened in the restaurant industry over the summer. Uh, you know, uh, warm weather and what have you allow people to reemerge, open their restaurants, and now you're seeing the the, the same thing play out in reverse. Um, so not just the restaurant sector, but throughout the economy, you're seeing repeat layoffs, repeat uh, unemployment. Uh, the same people, many of the same people who filed in the spring, are being forced to refile again. Daniel, how far does this $900 billion stimulus effort in Washington, D.C. go to bridge the gap for all of these individuals that you're talking about? Well, as a calendar matter, obviously, it goes through the first quarter. Um, and it's clearly, uh, you know, enormously, enormously necessary. Uh, the $300 um, weekly benefit uh, for, you know, weekly supplement for employment is urgently needed. These, these people are going to go, many of these people are going to lose all of their benefits. So the extension of the benefits and the addition of the $300 supplement it was, was clearly needed. My big concern right now is the, re, the reestablishment of the PPP program. It, it's interesting because the PPP program really was an alternative way of getting payroll back to people who may not have actually been called back to work uh, but we're given the opportunity to receive funds. The problem this time around isn't so much that the unemployment system isn't working. This $300 supplement's really going to help, uh, and and we're going to get that. We clearly have a fairly high level of household savings that's you know gradually burning off. The problem right now is how the businesses are going to survive. 
So I'm very interested to see the language in the bill, specifically with regard to the use of the new PPP uh, proceeds, meaning I think it's about $230 uh, billion, whether or not businesses are going to be able to use these proceeds, not just to supplement uh, or, or put people back on payroll who they currently can't employ, um, but also whether or not they're going to be able to use it uh, for other expenses such as rent and other uh, payables that they've accrued over the last uh, several months. Well, you talked about, uh, in addition to the companies and their concerns, the high savings rate among individuals. Do you think that the direct payments to individuals will be effective given the fact that they will target the people who are most vulnerable, or do you think that that money would have been more efficient elsewhere? Well, what I do think is going to happen is we're going to see an increase in the savings rate in the first quarter. So you have the you have the $600 per person checks for uh, the middle class and working class. Those will go out. Those may get expended uh, or they may not, as, as the lockdown period demonstrated. In that period, we had a huge increase in retention of funds. Um, right now, given the, the, the viral surge, you have to ask yourself whether or not the, uh, this period is going to see, the first quarter is going to see an increase in consumption as opposed to savings, because if people are sitting at home and worried about the virus and not getting vaccinated until the second or third quarter, um, you, you know, you, you, you're probably going to see at least some of the same phenomena you saw well, in in March through uh, June. Dan, congratulations on your work with Cornell Law this year, truly adding value to the view of our labor economy. Daniel Alpert's with Westwood Capital. I can't say enough about really what has become a timeless uh, book over a decade age of oversupply. On the fixed income market, George Gorey. He is with Wells Fargo and is hugely attuned to the clipping of coupons and the search for total return. George Borey, in 2021, am I content to clip a coupon, what little it is, or dare I can say I'm looking to try to find total return? Yeah, good morning, Tom, and thank you very much. Calling from uh, Wells Fargo Asset Management to kind of talk you through fixed income. And, and as you point out, yields are still very low. But as Lisa just mentioned, you can't give up on bonds just yet, whether it's the dollar or U.S. Treasuries. You know, when people get uncertain, you know, bonds, t you know, bonds rally and they tend to really be the anchor for your portfolio. Uh, as we think about next year, what you're seeing right now is a little bit of a reversal of the trend that's been pretty well established. And our view is that as we get into next year, that view is going to continue. Yields are likely to continue to creep a bit higher. And I say a bit because there are a lot of very strong forces. You mentioned several already limited inflation, growth that's uncertain, the trajectory of COVID, it's very difficult to just simply, you know, throw in the towel and give up on your bond trade. Bond yields are low for a very good reason. They're likely to stay pretty low, but we'll see a little bit of incremental move up. So for us, your biggest job, your most important job as a bond investor is number one, it is capital preservation, making sure you maintain the gains you've captured over the last one, three, five, 10, 12, 30 years, bonds have had a great run, uh, but look for extra income, look for that coupon, look for that just a little bit of payment that's coming your direction. It's not easy, but you know we do find corners of the market, pockets to try and add that income to the portfolio. 
George, I'm, I'm struck by what one noted bond manager said last week, Scott Minard, who came out and said, you don't want to hire an optimistic bond manager because you just want to get paid back. And I'm looking right now, and bond <laughs> managers seem to be really optimistic when you look at what people are demanding to own the lowest rated debt, given the fact that companies are still struggling. The economy is not back to normal. Do you feel like people have gotten a little bit exuberant when they've gone into this lowest rated debt, given that it's paying almost record low yields at this point? There's a big assumption baked into the markets, and that's, that's both fixed income and equities. And the first, the first big assumption is that the Fed's got your back. The Fed's going to be with you every step of the way, and they're, they're not going to allow yields to rise significantly. The second is that, interest, um, that inflation is going to remain very well contained. Those, those are the two factors that I think, uh, you know, we think underpin, you know, kind of that bond market enthusiasm, if you will. There's good reason for both of those. As we said, you know, as you mentioned, the data looks to support the inflation uh, story, and the Fed was pretty committal last week in terms of its willingness to support the market. So I don't know if it's, uh, it's an optimistic uh, bond investor, but they're certainly content. And there is, a, there is a certain amount of complacency in the market that does concern us. And, and, and in spots of the market, we think the markets run a little too far, a little too fast. Investment grade corporate debt is, is one of those uh, parts of the market. If you look this year, an interesting stat, you know, spreads are basically, credit spreads for corporates are just about back to where they were at the beginning of the year. Year over year, one of the smallest changes in credit spreads almost in history, but one of the largest ranges from top to bottom over the course of the year. So if you look at this in the history books, you're going to say not much happened for investment-grade credit spreads in 2020, but anyone that lives through it knows it's been one heck of a wild ride. Spreads there look tight. We want to take some profits, not sell it all, but take some profits and move that money into other things, maybe a more kind of conservative position in mortgage-backed securities, higher yeah. rated, or even go down in quality. To and Tesla. we will take some optimistic, <laughs> <laughs> optimistic, uh, optimistic strategies in, in high yield, which again, pretty more optimistic, but we gotta find, we've got to find those coupons. George, just keep plowing through. That's what we all do. I will yeah. say, <laughs> you know, that's, that's well done. Morning. <laughs> so have we gotten to the point where safe bonds aren't so safe anymore? Well, they, they, that, that's a great point, Lisa. And, and I, I, based on that sort of belief about the Fed and interest rates, your biggest challenge today is not so much your, your sort of um, your, your corporate behavior, but just very long durations. You know, the long maturity you have in a bond with very low yields means any marginal increase in yields it could, 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 could represent a pretty big uh, loss in your portfolio. So we're watching that. As I mentioned, capital preservation. You have to be very careful about where you position along the curve. We do have a preference for short to intermediate dated bonds that provide you with a little bit of protection. Long dated purchases need to be for long dated investments. These are, these are investments in pensions, in, in, saving, in very long-term savings accounts, and for longer duration insurance companies. We want to be careful yeah. at the long end of the curve. We want to try and maximize as much yield as possible at the front end. Right. And I think that we think that's a, that's a sensible strategy right now. George, you've been doing this way back to Fleet, 1992. And one of the things that upsets me no end is the belief that bond money will move into equities. What is your experience of psychological bond money all of a sudden finding the equity market? Does that actually happen? 
It happened. It not 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 as much as uh, as maybe we think. I mean, there there does you know obviously there's there's very large asset allocation teams that are constantly managing between bonds and stocks. And as one runs ahead of the other, you know they'll allocate back and forth. We have a whole team that does that. Many of our competitors do, and that is sort of the balance of the market. The big run up in equities. You know, has driven a fair bit of money into bonds. We expect that trend to continue. Interesting. We have not seen the trend go the other way, at least not yet. There are some discussions about why you hold bonds and how long you should hold them for. But as it stands today, there's still a bias to move out of equities and into bonds and trying to immunize portfolios as you move through time. So in my long tenure, uh, it's been mostly the other way. And, and with, although there's a lot of discussion about it this year, we've yet to really see a meaningful shift going from right. bonds into equities. And we really don't think well, that's going to happen just yet. Great Monday briefing, particularly in this market too much. George Borey, thank you so much, as well as Fargo uh, Asset Management. Mercedes Carnathon is at Northwestern University in Chicago. I should say Evanston. They like to say Evanston, not Chicago. Excuse me, Professor. And joins us on preventative medicine right now. Mercedes, I want you to address to our public on radio and television how you have less of a fear of mutation of variant as we look at the United Kingdom this morning. How do you as a pro in preventative medicine treat the known that there will be mutations? Yes, that's a really good point. You know, it is certainly scary to us and concerning when we hear about these mutations, especially when that message is coupled with news that it is spreading more rapidly. But we've known from multiple viruses over time that they do mutate. That's how they manage to stay alive. They've got to keep changing so that they can keep infecting people and preferably keep their stream of people uh, as open as possible by even changing in the long run enough so that they can start to reinfect people. So we do expect this, but why it doesn't concern me quite as much is that the types of vaccines right now that are being developed can address that directly. They, um, they're different than the flu vaccine, which has to be repeated annually. Um, and so they will, right now, we still believe they'll be effective, even with mutations. So there's a question about the vaccine, Mercedes, but there's also a question of just how long it will be before we can get back to normal. And given the schedule of the vaccinations, the fact that we've seen a little bit of a delay here in the United States, there's a question about supply chains with the recent lockdown in the United Kingdom. How much does this new strain of the virus prolong the pandemic as we know it currently? Right now, there's no evidence to suggest that the current microRNA vaccines will not be effective uh, against this new strain. And so I wouldn't say that that's likely to be the delay in our return to normal. What's going to happen, what the delay will be, is if our behaviors don't continue to hold the line on social distancing and masking. Because as you think about our vaccine rollout strategy here in the United States, we're first protecting the infrastructure, and that's the medical infrastructure by vaccinating healthcare workers, and then those with the highest risk of death, so individuals <clears throat> who are older or in nursing homes, but who we aren't vaccinating first are the people we think are the super spreaders. And so as long as that 20 to 39-year-old group is not being vaccinated, we think they're the ones who are spreading it. And so that's what's going to slow down our return to normal. 
Mercedes, the success of smallpox, of rabies, of polio, do you do you place this tragedy in that group and that we can be successful with this vaccine and literally eradicate COVID? You know, it's possible. Um, however, doing so is going to take a, is going to require a global strategy. You know, I was reading concerning reports coming out of Africa, coming out of other developing, um, out of the you know continent of Africa, and then coming out of developing world countries where they don't have a vaccine right now. They certainly don't have have the ability to maintain a vaccine at negative 80 degrees Celsius, which which is what's required of these two vaccines, and because of global travel eradication is going to be hard if we don't focus our attention on reaching every corner of the world. Mercedes, just quickly here, I'm wondering what you think of the schedule of the vaccinations as they've been laid out. Who is essential and how quickly can they get vaccinated? Yeah, no, I, I am pleased with the uh, schedule because I think protecting the infrastructure of healthcare workers who have to interact directly <clears throat> with patients who have COVID does need to be our highest priority. Next, we do need to address those who have the highest rate of death or poor outcomes. And so I'm pleased with that. I was also pleased over the weekend to see that essential workers were prioritized, those individuals who are educating our, our children, those individuals who are providing food and manufacturing services that cannot be done from home. So I do think that that is the right route. And if we can uh, bolster the supply chain to get things out to as many people as who want this vaccine by late spring, early summer, perhaps by fall, we can start to see well, somewhat of a return to normal. Mercedes, thank you so much. Too, too short a visit today. Mercedes Carnathon of Northwestern University in preventive medicine. The news here is extraordinary out of the United Kingdom, where they are simply overwhelmed with a mutation, a variant of the COVID-19 virus, and there is a shutdown of the United Kingdom with all other nations uh, reacting. One of those best qualified to speak on this is Megan Green, with her time in the United Kingdom, now at the Harvard Kennedy School, and a senior fellow there as well. Megan, with the news of the virus, the stimulus has just been subsumed as well. And in my reading last night and into this morning on the stimulus, it's stunning to me how quickly it will all end. Do you just assume it's almost a stopgap stimulus till we get out to March or April or May? Yeah, so the stimulus package, uh, Tom, was always meant to bridge to the other side. And, and the other side is the vaccine, which thankfully we have a lot of good news on, though I do think this new contagious strain in the UK does raise questions about how quickly this virus will mutate and whether the vaccine you know, will be effective on it, how often we have to update the vaccine, all those things. But this stimulus really is a stopgap. It's come really late and it's a little lame, honestly. It's, it's not as big as I would have liked, but it, it's better than no stimulus <clears throat> before the end of the year at all. If we had waited until the new administration had come into power, particularly if the Republicans control the Senate, then it probably would have been even smaller. So I think this was probably the best that we could have realistically hoped for. Do you expect that policy will be committed within the Biden administration? I know you're going to say we got to wait to see the Georgia elections, plural. I get that. But are you optimistic about policy or will it be gridlock as seen for years? 
So I, I do think the Biden administration is committed to both managing this virus, containing it as a top priority, and then to building back better, so taking a more medium-term outlook, so not just filling in the hole that we all fell down when we shut down our economies this year, but also looking towards how to upgrade the labor force, how to fundamentally retool our economy for state sustainability, those kinds of things. But the Biden folks are coming in, they had a really ambitious spending plan and I think that will be significantly curtailed. So things like health care reform, tax reform, that's going to be a lot harder um, now than, than it would have been if there had been any kind of significant majority in the Senate, um, particularly for the Democrats. But whoever wins in Georgia, it's going to be a razor slim majority. So that will mean that, you know, the Biden administration can't do everything it wanted to do. So, Megan, you said that this fiscal support bill was a little lame, which I imagine is high level CFA speak. But there is a question of the efficacy and the directness of this support. Do you call it little lame simply because of the size, because you'd like to have seen it be bigger? Or is it because of the type of support being delivered? So both because of the size, I think it should have been somewhere between one and one and a half trillion, and it's it's below that clearly, but also because it left out any kind of real direct support to state and local governments, though it did offer some indirect support in terms of education, virus um, measures, also testing and tracing, but they were generally pretty small. I mean, they devoted less money to um, testing and tracing and, and the vaccine than they did to the airlines, although the airlines, to be fair, was for kind of payroll support, so it's not um, useless, but I'm surprised by how little was actually devoted to the virus itself, because unless we can actually contain this virus, we're just going to keep having to do this over and over and over again, passing stimulus after stimulus. So. so Go ahead. Well, no, I mean, this is such a politicized point, this question of what's the best source of or what's the best method of financing here? Is it to give direct payments to individuals and households or is it to give money to state and local governments? And it's been so highly politicized because Democrats have been for that state and local funding and Republicans have been adamantly against it. Yet economists have come out also pretty much on either side, with some people saying direct infusions into lower income households is a very direct injection of cash into the economy. And Others saying that state and local governments need it more. Where do you weigh in on this debate? I think we should have done both. Look, real borrowing costs are negative. Uh, the markets are begging the government to borrow. The Fed is begging the government to borrow to fight this war. So I think the answer is we shouldn't have felt so constrained in the size, and we should have allocated money to both. But uh, policy is generally a question of trade-offs. Um, and so, you know, I think in this case, it was inappropriate that we felt we had to to accept some trade-offs. I think we could have funded both. I think another really interesting point in this is, is the reaction to the Fed's uh, facilities. Uh, I think the Fed has got to be worried about its own independence now, and it's clear that the Republicans are going to be attacking the Fed um, throughout this well, administration. So I think that's a concern as well. Well, let's rip up the script here, folks. I was going to go three other ways with Megan Green, including Red Sox baseball, but this is more important than Red Sox baseball. Megan Green, it's another shot at the Fed independence. How does the Fed defend itself against the battle of independence? Back to McChesney Martin. So I think the Fed has to be creative. In this case in particular, if the Fed can't provide the same kind of cookie-cutter programs, then it's just going to have to innovate more. But 
in an era when you know central banks globally are trying to not be the only game in town and they're asking fiscal authorities to step in, if fiscal authorities don't step in, the reality is, is that central banks will have to be the only game in town. And to do that, they're going to have to do really unorthodox things. We've already seen that happen in Europe. The ECB is offering Teltros, which are subsidies to the banks. Um, and so, you know, we're going to need to see central banks innovate, and that's going to be a lot harder uh, for the Fed in particular, and the Fed's going to be much more sensitive to moving into fiscal space yeah. uh, if the Republicans are constantly taking shots at its independence. And we're going to rip up the script twice with Megan Green. We rarely do that except with Megan Green, and that is Russia with a headline out looking for an output lift on OPEC as well. Brent crude reacts a little bit. We'll see above 50, and it goes down. I don't want to overplay the movement here. But Megan Green, my book of the year, Daniel Jurgen, The New Map. And it's real simple. He talks about the new map of OPEC, the new map of Russia, the United States, Saudi Arabia, and the rest. Does oil politics matter anymore in your world, or is that a legacy of another time and place? So matter for who, I guess, is the question. It matters less for the U.S. now that shale production means we're a net exporter, but it still certainly matters. We saw that in March when oil prices started going negative, kind of what it did to the markets. And also what it started to do to the oil patch, um, it started to prompt much more consolidation. So oil certainly matters, but less for the U.S. than it did one. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, why don't you jump in here and uh, please rip up the script for a third time. We might as well do that. It's a, it's a hat trick. <laughs> I'll rip up the script for a third time. Let's talk consensus and consensus being turned on its head because that's really been the theme of today. This question of whether a blip in the markets, a blip in sentiment really calls into qu uh, question the consensus that has been so dominant in the economics world. The consensus is that next year will be a lot better and that will continue to grow and potentially start to grow out of the pain that we saw in 2020. Where are the cracks in that consensus, Megan? Yeah, so I've got to say I've never seen such an overwhelming consensus among economists going into a new year. Um, and so I, I agree with the consensus. It's hard to disagree that there will be pent-up demand released next year off the back of a widely distributed vaccine, hopefully. Um, and that, that should drive equities high. <clears throat> bond yields a bit higher, the U.S. dollar lower. I think the, the major uh, potential shortfall of that is, is that inflation could pick up. And I actually will die on this hill. I don't think inflation will pick up. But there is a chance that as you get <clears throat> pent-up spending uh, released, you could end up getting a small uptick in inflation. Um, if, if you ended up having central banks feel like they had to hike into that, then a, a lot of leveraged companies uh, right. and a lot of countries in EM will get into big trouble. And so I think that's yeah. the, the most vulnerable point uh, in that consensus view. Megan Green, thank you so much. The Harvard Kennedy School Senior Fellow with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.